Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. So it's a Wednesday and it's the second hour of the program. That means it's time for Mark Halpern. I am a paid subscriber to the wide world of news and I recommend that you do likewise. I begin my day by reading Mark's insights. Uh, today, by the way, he makes reference unnecessary, but greatly appreciated, makes reference to his appearances on this program. Thank you so much for that, Mark. I have an agenda, actually, today. There are three things that I want to make sure that we address. One, broke too late for inclusion in your newsletter or mine, for that matter, but uh, you'll certainly be conversant about it. The president's home at Rehoboth Beach apparently being searched by the FBI as we speak relative to the whole classified document issue. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the debt ceiling, meaning <clears throat> Biden and McCarthy, as you deal with in detail in the newsletter today. And then, of course, the news of Nikki Haley. Let's begin with the uh, the search of the Rehoboth property. Uh, gut check on that. I, I may be catching you cold because it just broke in the last 10 minutes. Yeah, no, I've been spending my 10-minute prelude to our conversation following that. Uh, it's not a surprise in the sense that, um, you know, Joe Biden has been found to have documents with classified markings at other properties. And, um, you know, logic and prudence would suggest that even though that that area has been searched by the president's team, they say, uh, it makes sense for the Justice Department to look at it. There might be other more specific reasons why they're doing it. Besides just logic and prudence, they might have some reason to believe there might be something there. You'll recall that during this time when the president's other Delaware residence was searched, the by the first couple was actually at the beach house. And of course, uh, people who are skeptical of the president said, well, what are they doing in that house? They could be you know, disposing of, of documents or doing something they shouldn't be doing. I think the main reaction I have right now, because again, we need to learn more about why this is happening and obviously whether it turns up any documents, if it does turn up documents, you know, it'll once again call into question the skill of the president's own team in finding things. Uh, What I'm focused on is this. Uh, There's a there's a there's a um, a uh, clubbiness. There's a closeness between the president's lawyers and the Justice Department and the FBI. Every time there's an incident, uh, the president's team puts out a statement about how they're cooperating and how they're trying to help the FBI and justice do this right and that, you know, they don't want to announce things in advance because out of deference, that's on one level quite good um, because you, in, in any investigation, it's the law enforcement's preference that the people they are looking at cooperate. On the other hand, the closeness it makes me a little bit uncomfortable just as a citizen. There's always going to be a tension when the Justice Department that works for the White House is investigating the president who runs the White House. Uh, but I find in, in, in the chronology of this case, and today's search is, is a piece of that, there's just a little bit too much closeness. There's a little bit too much of working hand in glove in a relationship that, by definition, should be a little bit more adversarial. And at some point, we'll learn whether that closeness, I hope we'll learn whether that closeness was proper and, and right or perhaps more problematic. The cheering that you're hearing is coming from a golf course near Mar-a-Lago, mm-hmm. I, I assume? Well, you know, just just as the Pence disclosures have helped Biden, it continues to be the case that you and I have discussed since this began. The, the Biden disclosures certainly help Donald Trump. They help him politically by being able to point out the areas in which 
the Biden case is worse than the Trump case. And in the areas of obstruction of justice, potential obstruction of justice, in the areas of cooperation in getting documents that should be returned, returned, the Trump case is what, based on the facts we now have, much worse. But there are some areas in which the Biden thing is raises some questions. And this will be another one where Donald Trump will be able to say, you know, why didn't they search the beach house sooner? Joe Biden was in the beach house. So if they don't find anything, it shouldn't be any surprise because he cleaned it all out. There's plenty of things he can say from a PR point of view. And again, as you and I have discussed, and most analysts agree, there's some dissenters. All of this makes it much more problematic, not as a matter of law, but a matter of the overlay of politics and law for the Justice Department to indict Trump related to the documents, even if the indictment were more about obstruction of justice or lying to investigators rather than the underlying action of taking improperly taking documents. Today, the president sits down with the Speaker of the House. It's the first meeting since Kevin McCarthy has become the House Speaker. Uh, You, by the way, linked to an Associated Press story that begins this way. Not so long ago, Joe Biden and Republican leader Kevin McCarthy used to talk things over at breakfast in Biden's vice presidential home at the Naval Observatory. Pressure on, you know, this meeting today because of the debt ceiling, the fact that the Biden administration doesn't want to be perceived as negotiating. What's your take? Well, there's an existential question that you probably want to have Sartre on at the 10 o'clock and the 11 o'clock hour to discuss, which is if you negotiate about whether to negotiate, are you in fact negotiating? (laughs) I'd say yes. (laughs) Most I think logically you'd say yes, but the White House would say no. They're having a full and frank exchange of ideas. Um, you know, Biden is a veteran of these high stakes negotiations about these issues. Uh, McCarthy is not. Biden's party is united. McCarthy is not. To dabble in press criticism, I would say the media in general would like the debt ceiling raised and would not like to see spending cuts. And that puts the media, most of the media in line with the Democrats in the White House. And that's an advantage for the president. I think that logically, at some point, if if there's going to be something that passes the House and Senate and signed into law, the debt ceiling is going to be need to be raised and there's going to have to be some spending restraint. And the question is, how do they choreograph that? I think if these two guys want to have a serious meeting and the expectations that their meeting will not move the ball dramatically, if they want to have a serious meeting, they should be trying to figure out how do you choreograph this in terms of timing, in terms of what's said publicly? So that the president can get on board with some sort of spending restraint that House Republicans are demanding in the majority. And how do they get enough votes to out of the House to raise the debt ceiling in time so the government doesn't default? That's really the issue. Entitlement reform, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, or savings from those programs is off the table. More reforms of spending for now aren't going to be done in time. It's simply a matter of, again, the choreography of the kabuki of Maybe it's not a quid pro quo, but on parallel tracks, restraint and spending satisfies their needs and, and, and interests of House Republicans. And raising the debt ceiling requires the needs of the, the, the executive branch. And I think they'll eventually work it out. And I think today will be a way station uh, along the way. But, you know, I think, again, because Kevin McCarthy does not have his party united behind him, he has less negotiating room than the president does. The president can comfortably stay in his position knowing that his party will almost certainly stay with him, uh, McCarthy's position is going to cause heartburn no matter which way he tries to slightly move. In the the wide world of news today, you publish a tale of the tape of your creation, which is insightful and funny. It's funny insofar as it shows 
where they have elements in common, not the least of which is their view of Donald Trump, quote, nothing but trouble. But you point out that with regard to the meeting that we're talking about, they have the same goal. Come across as the reasonable one who wants progress for the American people and no debt ceiling default. Uh, I think McCarthy is the one, my view, more with his hands full because of that constituency that in the end, Uh, folded their tent and elected him in the House battle. I mean, I imagine there are certain things they want, and I don't know if he's going to be able to deliver. Well, again, that's that's why he comes in here with a weaker hand. He's having a meeting this morning. It may have already happened with his conference, the other House Republicans, to try to have a unified position. But it ranges from those who who want to want to look at Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid uh, to those who want to take it off the table. Those who say you know, maybe default's not so bad. Maybe there's ways to manage a default in terms of who gets paid to to not have as big a problem as as people say. There are those who say, you know, who cares what Donald Trump did about spending? Now's the time to stop wasteful spending. And those who, who have a different point of view. So uh, McCarthy, you know, with a little bit of the hangover of the speaker vote, but also just with the general disparate views of House Republicans and Senate Republicans to a lesser extent, he just he just doesn't have as much running room. Whatever whatever he does, that's whatever he might do in the meeting, after the meeting, that signals uh, a willingness to compromise will be seen by some in his in his team as, you know, an outrage. And, you know, if if Joe Biden eventually cuts the deal that I think he'll eventually cut, which is raise the debt ceiling with no preconditions. But by the way, this isn't a precondition, but we're going to agree to some spending restraint. His party will be fine with that, I'm certain, even if the cuts hit some some sacred cows. McCarthy's position is just not that simple. Mark, the Post and Courier broke the news that Nikki Haley is going to announce, formally announce her candidacy for the presidency on February 15. The story said that she had told this to former President Trump and that he encouraged her to get in. If I think that's you know what her heart said she should do, words to that effect. Uh, I view this as great news for him. He wants her in. He wants Pence in. He wants Pompeo in. He wants everybody in. Do you see it the same way? Well, I think he needs mathematically back the envelope four or five other people in the race to have a you know, much better chance of winning the nomination rather than a small field in which could consolidate around around DeSantis and allow DeSantis to win the nomination. So certainly he wants he wants at least four other people in the race. Um I don't think he's worried from having talked to him over the years about Nikki Haley and talked to his people about her and just appraising her strengths and weaknesses. I don't think he's worried at this point that Nikki Haley is going to take the nomination away from him. Like any candidate who enters the presidential race on either side, you can do her balance sheet. There's some things about her that make her a potentially strong presidential candidate. There's some things that make her weaker. She's nowhere near in the league, even if she even if she launches surprisingly strong. She's nowhere near in the league of Trump and DeSantis based on polling, fundraising capacity, early state support, message, earned media capacity. She's just not in that same league. I think the question for her is, is she a second tier candidate in the end or is she a third tier candidate? Now, that doesn't mean she can't eventually be a first tier candidate, but sort of as the field forms, by the time we get to the first debate, is she a second tier candidate or third tier candidate? And I think that's where the jury is out. And I think we'll have to see. But Trump doesn't consider her a first-year candidate, and I don't believe his people consider her even to have that potential. So she, they want her. They want people in the race who will take votes effectively away from DeSantis, 
people looking for someone besides Trump, and she'll she'll certainly get some of that. Although, again, if you look at her poll standing at this point, she wouldn't get very much. McKay Coppins has a piece in The Atlantic uh, this week, I'll say, even though I'm not referring to a print edition. And it talks about the 2024 Republican field kind of keeping their powder dry and hoping that investigators will do their dirty work for them. And of course, since you and I have last spoken, comes the news that Alvin Bragg is now trying to re-energize the look of Trump vis-a-vis the whole Stormy Daniels hush money case. Uh, Here's the question that I want to ask you, and you address it today in the wide world of news. Will this cause those other would-be candidates to now speed up their clock? If Nikki Haley is getting in, then maybe I, Chris Christie, or Mm -hmm. I, Mike Pompeo, need to get in sooner than I had otherwise anticipated. Right. Great question. So in the cost-benefit analysis of should they get in early or late? First of all, they have to reach a decision about whether to run. And that's, to some extent, not a settled question. They, they're looking at who else is running and, and you know what fundraising they can do, et cetera. Trump and DeSantis don't really need to raise money, although there'll be a lot of attention on their efforts to do so, and they'll, they will do so. These other candidates need the money. They need to be able to hire staff. They need to be able to pay for advertising. They need to be able to show that they're credible candidates. And one of the big badges of that in this calendar year will be how much money you can raise. So these other candidates have to have to appraise that. They also need to worry about whether getting in the debate for the first Republican debate at the end of the summer as of now would require them to have raised a certain amount of money from low dollar donors, something the RNC is reportedly considering, which is something that takes time to do. And so to me, that's in some ways the biggest the biggest um, uh, pressure to get in the race, to start raising money from low dollar donors to qualify for the debate. But it's also to snatch up talent. Um, who who can you hire in Iowa and New Hampshire? Who knows those states and knows how to win them? You know, the other big variable, I think, is you've got two South Carolinians, Haley, who's apparently getting in, and Tim Scott, who might get in. And then you've got one Granite Stater, Governor Sununu. If they run, what does that do to the expectations game and the expectations in those two states, which are two of the first four voting states? In other words, if a favorite son or favorite daughter is running, do Trump or DeSantis actually have to win those states or do they just have to come in second? Um, and, and, and if the favorite sons or daughters lose, does that make those wins even bigger? Um, these other candidates have to decide again, cost benefit. If Haley gets in and she starts to get on TV all the time and she starts signing up people in the early States, I think that'll put pressure, uh, on these other candidates to say, you know, Hey, she's signing up all the talent, all the fundraisers. She's soaking up all these TV time. Trump's not hitting her. That will pressure them to speed up their timetable about a decision. And and if it's a go to enter. If she gets in and she gets first day coverage and then she kind of disappears and it doesn't appear she's signing folks up, I think the pressure, the, the, the status quo pervades and they may see some benefit in waiting more to the late spring or early summer before announcing. You know, uh, what occurs to me is that the three the three best nationally known Republicans in South Carolina are apparently headed in three different directions. Nikki Haley getting in herself, Tim Scott, as you just made reference to, perhaps getting in and Lindsey Graham saying he's standing with Trump. Yeah, uh, you and I haven't discussed this, I don't think, Uh, you know, it's 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 exhibit 952 of the press's, you know, negative coverage towards Trump. He, he goes to South Carolina. He gets the endorsement not just of the senior senator, Lindsey Graham, but of the governor, Henry McMaster. Uh, I would have covered that story if I'd worked for, you know, CBS or, or the AP as how embarrassing for Nikki Haley and Tim Scott 
that the two senior elected officials in the state are for a guy who's not from South Carolina, even though they know the two South Carolinians are poised to run. Instead, it was covered as, you know, Trump didn't get as many state legislators as someone might have thought endorsing him at his event. And I think that, again, it's an establishment state. It's a state Trump won and, and pretty much sewed up the nomination last time. So his team, again, I've talked to them about it. They're, they're looking at, well, what does it mean uh, if, 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 if do they have to run in the early four states? One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is Trump's first run and how in many ways, of course, was very unorthodox. But in some ways, it was very orthodox. And probably the primary example is he narrowly lost Iowa and then he won the next three states and pretty much sewed up the nomination. That's pretty traditional formula for winning a nomination, dominating the early states. And again, the question is, what can Trump do in South Carolina? What can he do in New Hampshire if their favorite sons, favorite daughters in those places? And DeSantis faces the same question if he runs. Today is February 1. Final question for Mark Halpern. As of this day, would you say that Biden and Trump are each the most likely nominee of their respective parties? I, I would. And I would say I continue, as you and I have discussed many times, to have a lot of questions about DeSantis performing, giving Trump a six month head start. Now, one thing I tweeted out this morning, not in the newsletter because I didn't get it till after, is he is starting his book tour soon, and it's going to take him to a lot of places, including to Dallas for the event that I have the invitation for on my Twitter feed. That's not going to be exactly like a presidential campaign, but there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on him as he travels around promoting his book. And, and so let's see if DeSantis can really be a genuine threat to Trump. But I continue to believe that the next most likely president is elected person, the person most likely to be elected president to win the presidential election in 2024 is Biden, then Trump, then DeSantis. And then after that, I think there's a big drop off in terms of knowing who, who the fourth most likely is. I, I thought it was Glenn Youngkin. I think the last time we talked, but I have to move him out of that slot because uh, because from what I'm hearing, the chances that he runs are 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 shrinking. Not impossible that he does, but they're shrinking. And you got to play to win. So if he doesn't run, I can't put him in the fourth slot. Well, can I just have the final word and say that apparently Nikki Haley yeah. is not intimidated by Ron DeSantis because she's looking at those same early polls that show, you know, Trump with <clears throat> roughly 50 percent and DeSantis with roughly 25. She's somewhere in the three percent range. If if she didn't believe he had a glass jaw, DeSantis, not Trump, yeah. I can't imagine yeah. she'd get in. Well, there's other reasons to run besides running to win. And I'm not saying this is true of her, but, you know, she might want to be on somebody's ticket. She might want to raise her name ID or speaking fees. She might want to just be there as an insurance policy. You hear that increasingly from from some of the people around these prospective candidates like Haley, which is run, build the thing up. Let's say Trump gets indicted in such a way that he can't run. Let's yep. say DeSantis has a glass jaw or doesn't run. You don't want to you don't want to then start from a standing start. I really do believe that a lot of people are, who get in this field are going to go after DeSantis before they go after Trump for a variety of reasons, including the data suggests that Trump supporters are close more closely bound to him and that you can peel more easily off of DeSantis. And so it's going to be fascinating to see. She'll be asked about them both in every interview she does around her announcement. Let's see how she talks about Trump, who she's got a relationship with. He hired her into his administration. Let's see how she talks about DeSantis. Let's see what kind of opposition research her team puts out about those two. And, and again, my, my sense from reporting is anyone who gets in this race is going to talk probably more and at least as much about why they're better than DeSantis than why they're better than Trump to try to be the one who, who takes Trump on one-on-one -on -one as opposed to letting DeSantis have that slot. 
Mark, thank you for the extended report. I really appreciate it. A lot of great fodder there, and we are grateful. Thank you, Michael. Great to talk to you. Have a great day and a great week. Mark Halpern, the wide world of news. I'm a paid subscriber, and I recommend you do likewise. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. I was thinking as Mark was making his final point that there's a poll that we linked to via the bulwark today at Smirconish.com saying that a quarter of Trump's supporters would hang with him if he were to run third party. I think that was the number. So when Mark says that the Trump supporters wouldn't take kindly to Nikki Haley going after him, you know, it's probably because they, they don't want to antagonize those voters, but that there'd probably be less of a reluctance to go after Ron DeSantis. Here's the data that I was making. Rev- do you have that data in front of you, what I was linking to? I do, from the bulwark. Yeah, uh, remind uh, me. So the headline says, uh, exclusive bulwark poll, most Republicans want to move on from Trump, but more than a quarter of likely voters are ready to follow him to a third party bid. A large majority of GOP voters is ready to move on from Donald Trump, but a devoted minority might not let them. That's the dynamic I, and this is written by Sarah Longwell, I've been watching unfold in my weekly focus groups with two-time Trump voters since the 2022 midterms. Today, those findings are reinforced by a new poll by the Bulwark and GOP pollster Wit Ayers of North Star Opinion Research. According to a memo from Ayers, Donald Trump has slipped to his lowest point since he has emerged on the political scene almost eight years ago. He remains a formidable force, to be sure, with a lock on approximately 30 percent of likely Republican primary and caucus voters nationally, but a majority of the GOP is ready to move on. Okay, but I have in front of me the Axios summary from last week, which says this. Three different polls, each showing Trump in a commanding position. Yeah, I know there's plenty of time on the clock, but come on, Nikki Haley's now going to get in, so we we have to analyze this. According to the latest Emerson survey, Trump leads DeSantis among Republicans 55-29. Nikki Haley's at 3%. Morning consult, Trump 49, DeSantis 30, Nikki Haley 3%. Harvard Harris, Trump 48, DeSantis 28, Nikki Haley 3. It's what's remarkable about those. It's that they are exactly in the same place. Emerson, morning consult, Harvard Harris. And then, and I made reference this to a, a caller yesterday who in a nice way, wanted to kind of take me on, like, why are we even talking about Trump? Like, who cares about? And I said, sir, according to the latest Emerson survey, he leads Joe Biden by four. Well, it's actually three, but I have that data in front of me as well. Point being that Nikki Haley is saying, seeing the same information that I just referenced for all of you. She's not intimidated by it. And I think to Mark's point in the case of Trump, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Will he get indicted? Will he get an indicted? Will he be indicted in a way that really takes him out? I don't mean Alvin Bragg indicting him for Stormy Daniels, because I don't think that puts a dent in him. An eight year old case by the time that it would be brought in all likelihood. But Nikki Haley must also be looking at DeSantis and saying that she's not intimidated by the fact that for a guy who has not announced and and frankly, you know, doing the job that she did in, in South Carolina uh, maybe she doesn't think that that 30 percent is is really a hard number for him. What do you make of the news that Nikki Haley is going to put her hat into the ring as soon as February 14? What will be the impact on Trump? And do you agree with my assessment that his attitude, Donald Trump's attitude, is one of please, please do. 
and bring everybody else with you because the more the merrier. It'll just break up the vote, splinter it in the same way that it happened in 2016. Bottom line, Nikki Haley getting in helps Donald Trump, at least according to me. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app. Dave, you're in Illinois. Greetings. What did you most want to say? Hey, Mike. Uh, great show. I'll, I'll get right to the point. About 10 years ago, first Uber drivers in Chicago, and I'm sure police are much more aware that there are unmarked people delivering in rideshare. But what made me stop is that in, in less than a year, I had three encounters where dropping off fares in a, not a great neighborhood being ripped out of the car, face on the ground. The way that you see the police acting on that tape from Memphis, that's not a, a one-off. That's how it was every time. They think, you know, and I, luckily I didn't have drugs on me and I could prove that I was there doing Uber, but that is, I just, I think there's a, a better way to handle imagine, it because it's not uncommon. Imagine if we didn't have, I'm going to move you along only because I, I want to talk politics now. Imagine if there were no cameras then there would only be the police report, right, which apparently was fraudulent in the case of Tyree Nichols, and we'd be and we would be none the wiser. Hello, Cy, you're in Wisconsin. Talk to me about Nikki Haley. Sure. I uh, well, I voted for Trump twice, uh, but I'm one of the of the handful that think it's time for a change. I think the way she put it in recent weeks uh, was dead on, and I think she's being underestimated. Uh, to uh, give the, the field a run for their money. Why? What is it about her that you think people are, are undervaluing? Well, I, I, think, uh, I, th- I think there was a point in uh, Trump's presidency when, uh, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but there was some, uh, I think, um, oh, the guy that does the financial shows was indicating that maybe there was some confusion on her part, and she was pretty tough in replying, excuse me, I don't get confused. You know, with oh, I think she's I think she's good on her feet. I I'm not diminishing I'm not diminishing her qualities as a candidate. I just think that that Trump is in such a dominant position and DeSantis is in such a strong second position. Mark always makes the point, And I hear him because he knows of what he speaks, that the guy really hasn't been tested yet, meaning DeSantis on a national level and that he might be a bit prickly. We, we just don't know. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.